I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Laws number 693, and this is Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, making exercise and study a cornerstone of your daily routine, because Freemasonry is work. When you put in the work, get closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic muscle, we give you more light, but no light weights. We're here to pump you up, body, mind, and soul. Welcome back, welcome back. And you know what time it is, Masons from the East Coast to the West Coast. The ghost with the most, the hostess with the mostest. Have you been studying your ciphers? Because from what I hear, uh, memory work is something that is uh, required all over the world. I know there's some jurisdictions where they let you read, and that's where they're at. But for you jurisdictions, that this is what's required, have you been studying your ciphers? Officers or members of a lodge that have been wanting to help out and make your lodge stronger and participate in the best way you can. Have you been studying your ciphers? Have you been doing some memory? Have you been prioritizing your time correctly so that you can derive the most benefit from the minutes of your day, hours of the day, and to strengthen your lodge? Have you been studying the EA Fellow Craft and Master Mason Study Guides here in California. And if in other jurisdictions around the United States, if you have the EA Fellow Craft and Master Mason Study Guides, have you been studying them? Uh, here in California, the Masters and Wardens Retreat are on again. Have you been, have you signed up? If not, why not? Have you been digging into the mysterious origins of masonry? Have you been improving your spiritual, moral, and Masonic trestle boards? Have you stopped making excuses and begun to improve the level of your fitness one degree at a time? Have you improved the quality of your nutrition? If not, why not? When would now be a good time to start this improvement of your body, mind, and soul? When? I'm just wondering. Still haven't gotten an answer. Still have not gotten an answer. This is... This part two of the pagan origins of masonry, of the 12, of a list of 12 different origin theories of where Freemasonry comes from. And the pagan mysteries are, you know, the mystery schools. We've all heard of them. And if not, well, I'm glad you joined up because we're going to be digging into this for quite some time. And as we go, we're, I'm going to be going through not only these 12 different theories of the origins of Freemasonry, and many more. There are many more out there. But also, I'm going to be talking about the history of physical fitness, because that's part of what we do. Masonic muscle. I like to exercise. I played sports, competitive sports. I liked the, the competition. I like to stay in shape. So that's what I'm going to give to you. So we're going to now go back 
Let me get my paper here. And read from the article that I began to share with you that I got from the Art of Manliness podcast. He had a guest on. His name was or is Erwin LaCour. And he is the founder of MoveNet. And he wrote an article called The History of Physical Fitness. Broke it down. The section that I'm going to be covering again is the section that covers ancient times prepare for war. And it says this, between 4000 BC and the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD, civilizations rose and fell through war and conquest. Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Persians, and later on the Greeks and Romans all imposed physical training on boys and young men. The purpose? Preparing for battle. Ancient military training has similarities to the movements performed in nature by our caveman brethren, but with more structure and a different end goal. Young men practice fundamental skills such as walking and running on uneven terrains, jumping, crawling, climbing, lifting and carrying heavy things, throwing and catching, unarmed fighting and weapons training. Civilized populations valued physical culture for sports as well. Records of athletic competitions exist from ancient Egypt. And that's what I'm going to be reading just a little bit more today right now. And what do we learn about ancient Egypt and their physical training? Was there any evidence? Well, let's dive in. In ancient Egypt, lifting weights was an equally popular practice. Egypt, although different from China, still shared similarities when it came to physical culture. Wilson Chaco Jacobs' study of Egyptian physical culture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries highlighted the fact that weightlifting in Egypt dated back thousands of years and encompassed both gymnastics and heavy lifting. Did you catch that? It highlighted the fact that weightlifting in ancient Egypt, huh? Ancient Egypt. Let's keep reading. In ancient, in ancient Egypt, lifting weights was one of many sports engaged in by local soldiers, athletes, and regular men and women to improve their health. If you go online, you'll even find some enthusiastic Egyptian nationalists claim that lifting was so widespread in ancient Egypt that it actually spread from Egypt to far-flung places like Rome, Greece, Carthage, and Phoenicia. Whether or not this is the case is debatable, but it is clear that the Egyptians cared when it came to strength. One of the most popular lifting techniques in ancient Egypt was sack swinging, which could be compared with the modern-day clean-and-jerk Olympic lift. To build their bodies and also as a form of competition, Individuals would lift a sack of sand with one hand and keep it overhead for a period of time. Alongside these forms of weight training, we know that gymnastics was a hugely popular form of training for soldiers and citizens alike. Using a series of body weight or calisthenic exercises, men and women would strengthen their muscles and improve their agility. Unlike China, 
where a substantial written record has been preserved, our knowledge of Egyptian strength training comes primarily from murals found in tombs. Some tombs, such as the tomb of Beni Hassan, date to 3500 BC. In Hassan's tomb, we have evidence of men and women exercising with weights in the form of paintings. Later tombs, such as Prince Bhakti III's tomb from 2040 BC or the tomb of Kedi also depicted Egyptian soldiers exercising with weights. Such murals hint at both a recognition that strength training held value and that it was popular. So you have these murals, these paintings depicting exercises going back 35 to 3500 BC or 3500 years. Interesting, and that they're depicting actual weightlifting and gymnastics and, and uh, swimming, javelin throwing, because they, the pharaohs would hunt the hippos. But what about the ancient mystery schools, the pagan mysteries? Were there any pagan mystery schools in Egypt? What do you think? Let's read from a book called Ancient Mysteries and Modern Masonry by the Reverend C.H. Vale. And this book is a collection of lectures that this brother gave back starting in 1909. And he has this to say when it comes to ancient Egypt. Uh, lost my page. Apologies, apologies. Apologies, brethren. Here we go, found it. The Egyptian Mysteries. The learned Greek Plutarch, himself an initiate into the Osirica, of which there was probably Thyosis at Delphi, gives much valuable information regarding the mysteries of Egypt. Of course, he could only give hints for, as he says, in speaking of the priests, their philosophy, which for the most part was hidden in myths and words, logoi, containing dim reflections and transparencies of truth as doubtless, they themselves make indirectly plain by fitly setting sphinxes upon before the temples as though their reasoning about the gods possessed a wisdom wrapped in riddle. So great, then, was the care Egyptians took about the wisdom which concerned the mysteries of the gods. And the most wise of the Greeks also are witnesses. Solon, Thales, Plato, Eudoxus, Pythagoras, and as some may lay, Lysurgis as well, through coming to Egypt and associating with her priests, and brought back to the memory of his men their symbolic and mysterious art, containing their dogmas and dark sayings. When, therefore, thou hearest the missayings of the Egyptians concerning the gods, wanderings and dismemberings, and many such passions, thou shouldest remember what has been said above and think none of these things spoken as they really are in state and action. That is from Plutarch concerning the mysteries of Isis and Osiris. This is true not only of the Egyptian myths, but also of the others. Sorry about that. 
You can see how my dogs got all excited about when I started talking about the Egyptian mysteries. And what that paragraph was saying was that when you got initiated, you were supposed to talk about it. You were never to reveal in any way, shape, or form what you had witnessed and what you had heard. But they did. They were so enthusiastic about it, so excited and to bring it back and have been a part of these mysteries in ancient Egypt where everybody went, according to history. Let's read on. Plutarch then sets forth the Osiris and Isis mystery myth. It begins with... It begins with the birth of the gods. Osiris, the elder Horus, Typhon, Isis, etc. Osiris and Isis being in love with each other were united. They ruled over Egypt for many years, but finally, finally the malicious Typhon, his evil brother, while filled with envy, sought his destruction. He devised a beautiful chest and having it brought into the banquet hall, promised to give it to anyone whom it would exactly fit. Osiris stepped in and laid down, whereupon they who were present, present rushed up and put on the lid and fastened it down and carried the chest to the river Nile, whence it was borne out on the flood to the sea. When Isis heard what had been done, she set forth in search of the chest, which, meanwhile, had been carried by the waves to the Biblos country, where the land wash brought it to rest in a certain heather bush or tamarisk tree, a species of acacia. This bush grew around and folded and hid it entirely within itself. The king, Macondor, marveled at the greatness of the tree and cut it down and made it a prop in the form of a pillar for his roof. But Isis having found trace of the chest and its disposition through Anubis and the Demonian spirit of a voice, came also to Biblos and sitting down by a fountainhead, showed attention to the maids of the queen, dressing their hair with ambrosia, thus securing an invitation to the palace, where she became nurse of the queen's little child. Then finding time ripe to reveal herself, the goddess claimed for her own the pillar of the roof, and taking it down, she cut the tree from around the coffin and placing the chest in a boat, carried the body to her son Horus, who concealed it in a deep forest. But Typhon, while out hunting, came upon it, and recognizing the body as that of Osiris, tore it into fourteen parts and scattered them abroad. Isis, hearing what had been done, sought to recover the parts, and succeeded in finding all but one, which had been cast into the river and eaten by the fishes. Horus then fought Typhon and empowered him when it was proclaimed that Osiris had risen from the dead. This is merely an outline of the myth. It has a microcosmic and macrocosmic meaning. In the former sense, Osiris and Isis are cosmic or supercosmic beings, symbolized by the sun and moon, and the elder and younger Horus as the intelligible and sensible worlds. Microcosmically, the myth pertains to the mystery of initiation, the Horus or Christ stage of manhood. In this latter aspect, it symbolizes the mystic life of the initiate. 
In regard to initiation, Plutarch says, When the initiates of vices at their death are adorned in these robes, it is a symbol that this reason, logos, is with them. And with him and not else, they go there, or walk there, that is, in Hades. The death here mentioned is the mystic death unto sin. For it is not the growing beard and wearing cloak that makes philosophers, O Clee, not clothing and linen and shaving oneself that makes initiates of vices, but a true Isaac is one who, when he by law receives them, searches out by reason, locals, the mysteries shown and done concerning these gods, and meditates upon the truths in them. This mystery rite is referred to by Epiphanius as solemnized in the Temple of Isis, who is called the Virgin Mother or World Virgin. And speaking of the Feast of Epiphany, which was a great day in Egypt connected with the birth of Aeon, a phase of the birth of Horus, he says, Indeed, the leaders of the idol cults filled with wiles to deceive the idol worshippers who believe in them, and many places keep highest festivals on this same night of Epiphany, the manifestation of light, so that they whose hopes are in error may not seek the truth. For instance, at Alexandria, in the Corion, as it is called an immense temple, that is to say, the precinct of the Virgin, after they have kept all night vigil with song and music, chanting to their idol, when the vigil is over at Cockcrow, they descend with lights into an underground crypt and carry up a wooden image lying naked on a litter with the seal of a cross made in gold on its forehead and on either hand two similar seals and on both knees two others, all five seals being similarly made in gold. And they carry around the image itself, circumambulating seven times the innermost temple to the accompaniment of pipes, tabers, and hymns. And with merrymaking, they carry it down again underground. And if they are asked the meaning of the mystery, they answer and say, Today at this hour, the maiden, core, that is, the virgin, gave birth to the aeon. In the city of Petra also, the same is done. And they sing the praises of the virgin. And him who was born from her, Dusares, that is, alone begotten of the Lord. This also takes place in the city of Elusa on the same night, just as Petra and at Alexandria. This is just the beginning of some of what these mysteries revealed to their initiates. And there were officers of these schools, uh, one of them being the Hierophant. And as we go through this, and I share this with you all, you will begin, if you're a Mason, you will begin to see some correlations, or maybe not. Maybe you say, nah, it's, you know, that's fanciful. And it might be. But I'm, we're here to explore the mysterious origins of Freemasonry. And right now what we're doing is exploring 12 different theories of the origins of Freemasonry. And right now we're on theory number two, that Freemasonry derives from the ancient pagan mystery schools. 
So we must try to understand what was going on in ancient times. How advanced were these civilizations? If you go on YouTube now, there's more and more talk as to just how advanced were these civilizations. Did they have advanced technology? And then what does that mean? When you say advanced technology, what, what does that mean in their time? And could it be that these mystery schools are really that old? Are they? And could it be that Freemasonry has some ties to this? That's what we're trying to explore. That's what we're exploring. That's what we should be exploring. So with that, that ends this section. This session, I wish you guys all well. Be with the people you love. Eat well. Exercise. Study. Be grateful. Have gratitude for everything that we have been given. And continue to fight for what is right. Always. Yeah. These strong sessions are calculated to inculcate in the mind of the novitiate the importance of subduing our passions and improving ourselves in masonry, feeding the attentive ear with the sound of the instructive tongue, endeavoring to add to the common stock of knowledge and understanding, effectively spreading the cement of knowledge and wisdom, and hopefully some good will towards exercising. Get out there and get your walking in. Open up your ciphers. Study, memorize, and just do it.